From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Brendan Telerik. Today we have a special triple show for you. First up, OSU's Scarlet and Gray radio sportscaster, Sam Overmeyer, talks to sports writer and historian John Greenberg, author of The Grand Old Man, Amos Alonzo Stagg, about college football and the grand old man himself. We follow that up with two original works performed by their authors. First, OSU English graduate student Mary Catherine Ramsey describes the lighter side of how she relates to Emily Dickinson in Emily Dickinson, Alone in Her Room. Then, stick around as we are joined by author R. Rissler for part one of her own original work, Tarzan's Day Off. And we are pleased to welcome in John Greenberg, who is a sports historian and best-selling author, including his book, The Grand Old Man, Amos Alonzo Stagg. John, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. Well, let's start with the book. It's now out in an ebook edition on places like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Can you tell us a little bit about right. the book first? Well, in summary, Amos Alonzo Stagg is somebody that every sports fan should know about because he is the founding father of uh, basically the, the way that we uh, have viewed sports in America. Uh, he was one of the founding fathers of the Big Ten Conference, the American Football Coaches Association, the NC. Uh, he was a tremendous role model, uh, the concrete example of what a man should be, a coach should be, a teacher should be, a husband should be, and a father should be. And uh, he's especially timely uh, because uh, the Big Ten uh, Conference Championship game, the winner is going to get the Stag Trophy. And uh, it's, it's so fitting because it, it's great that uh, his name is being brought to the front once again. And hopefully this will get people interested in learning about uh, what a great uh, man Amos Alonzo Stag was and the lessons that he stood for, and his, his legacy is something that really uh, is needed now because there's such a, a crisis in sports in, in general. Do you think, because his name was on there with Joe Paterno, as you mentioned, they've right. removed Paterno's name. The Stagg right. family kind of came out in support of that, correct? Yes, they did. Uh, they, they did it because of, strictly because the Big Ten Conference itself decided to do that. So it, it's not as though uh, the Stagg family uh, had it in for Joe Paterno or, or felt that Joe Paterno uh, did not uh, uh, deserve that sort of recognition because when the decision was made to put his name on the trophy in the first place, there was absolutely no objections at all from the Stagg family or from anyone that ever uh, knew Amos Alonzo Stagg or, or played for Amos Alonzo Stagg. And believe it or not, there are still people around who played for him because he coached all the way up into the 1950s. As a matter of fact, uh, a grandson of one of his players uh, was playing for the Green Bay Packers in the last Super Bowl. <laughs> so Amos Alonzo Stagg, you know, he's, he's still very much uh, around in that sense. And, and I don't want anybody to ever think that uh, Amos Alonzo Stagg's descendants had uh, any ill feelings about Joe Paterno. And I think that uh, what happened to Joe Paterno is, is, a, is a tragic thing. And, uh, you know, it's a situation where, uh, you know, you're in a position where you are uh, in the top rung of an organization and you are going to be 
held responsible for what goes on within that organization, uh, just like uh, what happened with uh, Jim Trestle. Do you think that they will at some point add another coach to this trophy, or do you, you just think it will stay as the Stag Trophy from now I, on? I was, I was on a, a show uh, with a, a gentleman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, recently, and uh, he offered the opinion, why couldn't they call it the Stag Yost Trophy in honor of Fielding Yost? And he raised an excellent point because Fielding Yost uh, he, he did an awful lot at the University of Michigan. He, he took Michigan a, a long time ago. A, a great uh, student of football said to me, Fielding Yost brought civilization to Ann Arbor. And if it wasn't for Fielding Yost, you would not have Michigan Stadium. If it wasn't for Fielding Yost, you wouldn't have that tradition of Michigan football that, that is so so monumental, you know, the song, The Victors, that all came out during Fielding Yost reign. And uh, he, his pride and joy was that stadium. And I remember Fielding Yost's greatest comment was, it holds, well, at that time it held about 80,000 people. He says, yes, it holds all those people. And the best part of it is that every one of them has to pay to sit there. So <laughs> Fielding Yost, uh, he, he was a, a very colorful man. And so, yes, uh, there's a possibility that they could add another name to the trophy. And because what's the trophy supposed to do? It's supposed to, to be a reminder uh, of what everyone in that conference is to be shooting for. You know, th- this was a level that uh, the giants of the game, like Amos Alonzo, Stagg, and Fielding Yost, this is a bar that they set, and that everyone uh, should uh, aspire to reach that bar and and maybe even uh, surpass that bar. And I think you bring up the great point also of these names. They're going to encourage people to go out, read books like yours, look up who these people are, and to some extent they've become forgotten people in history. Yeah, yes. And and what was the criticism uh, leveled at uh, the uh, coach, Rich Rodriguez, who was at Michigan, was that they felt that he disregarded that Michigan tradition that he never really felt uh, at one with all that Michigan football stood for. So therefore, this is why it's important that when uh, a man is hired for a very prominent position of head football coach at a Big Ten university, that he should really have a great feeling for all that that institution of higher learning stands for and also for the tremendous tradition of athletic excellence that that institution stands for. And, And that's why... You know, this recent development of Urban Meyer being hired by the Buckeyes uh, to be their leader, this is all in keeping uh, with that theory because Urban Meyer is a son of Ohio. And I'm sure he's very well (laughs) aware of all the traditions and all that's involved with Ohio State football. Yeah, I think you brought up the excellent point, and that's been the big story around Columbus right now, is Urban Meyer coming in. And I think there's some fans... Most fans seem to be totally on board. Some are a, a little worried just of how much he's going to change things around here. But I think you're right. Being from Ohio, he's going to know what he has to do, and he's not going to take the Rich Rodriguez approach like he tried at Michigan. No, and, and also don't forget Urban Meyer won a national championship. Uh, well, I'm down here in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. He won a national title at Florida. He coached a Heisman winner. So he knows what it takes in today's football to reach the top. And I think you're, I think the Buckeye fans that have any misgivings about Urban Meyer, I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised 
with what comes to pass in, in, in the seasons to come. Now, bear in mind, uh, they're going to have a, a rough uh, patch because they're going to have to deal with the NCAA penalties that are forthcoming. But uh, Urban Meyer is a guy who can take the heat, and I think he's going to do a, a heck of a job there. Do you, what do you think the NCAA penalties are going to be? Well, you know, I'm, I've been uh, tossing in my mind NCAA penalties. Well, why is it that at this point of the football season when we should be thinking about conference championship games and bowl games and, and deep for the national title that we have to be thinking so much about what are the penalties going to be? Uh, the penalties for Ohio State, uh, I'm sure they're going to be loss of scholarship. Uh, I think that that is the the key element in in how they punish them. Uh, they will lose some scholarships, and uh, I don't know about any uh, game suspensions because I don't know off the top of my head how many of those players are are still going to be uh, on the roster next year. But I would I would guess that uh, what they're going to be talking about is is loss of scholarships, possibly uh, not being allowed to participate in a bowl game. And I'm all basing that on what happened to the University of Southern California and how they were dealt with. Now, uh, I'm sure the listeners are probably also uh, thinking, well, what about Penn State football? Is it possible that they could be penalized? Well, yes, the NCAA is going to hold an investigation after uh, all is said and done. And uh, that's that's an issue uh, that's going to have to be dealt with. And, and there's... There's going to have to be some big, huge change at Penn State. Uh, They will probably uh, have to have uh, just about everybody in that regime uh, gone in order to regain the trust of the general public uh, when it comes to Penn State football. So this whole business of of penalties, this this is a serious thing because it can have a huge economic impact. You know, the University of Miami, with the uh, scandal that came out about that uh, participation of that rogue booster, uh, Nevin Shapiro, uh, there was talk at one time that they deserved the death penalty. If you gave the death penalty to the University of Miami, there would be an awful lot of businesses located around the stadium that they play in that would suffer greatly. And the same thing would happen uh, uh, at uh, at, uh, Penn State if they were to invoke something like that. And this is what the NCAA looks at closely because it, they went through it once with Southern Methodist University in the late ni- 1980s. And as a result of that, Southern Methodist was not able to field a really competitive uh, football team for at least a decade. And they will, they will look at that uh, very, very closely. NCAA, uh, people may not uh, agree with their views on things such as whether athletes should be paid or not. But for the most part, they try to be as fair as possible because that's what the organization was created to do was to establish uh, fairness in sports, fairness in college athletics. So do you think we would ever see a death penalty again this time around, or was that a one and done? I don't know if we want to. I I really don't think it would be good for the game of college football. I I don't think that uh, it's great to be out there taking pleasure in the misfortune of others, and, and that's basically what you're doing. Uh, you know, when you say, well, uh, if so-and-so deserves a death penalty, what you're saying is, you know, they were successful. They don't deserve to be successful, and I don't like their success, and therefore they should be, they should be torn down, and the players that are there should, should be suffering for what goes on. I, I think I'd be interested in seeing if there was a way 
that they could make uh, the players that, that leave those schools and uh, were involved in rules breaking and go on to professional uh, careers where they're getting paid a huge million dollar, multi million dollar signing bonus that they're going to have to be uh, uh, paying uh, in restitution to show some sort of remorse for what they did. And also the coaches. I think that uh, the coaches uh, should have some sort of penalties uh, involved in their contracts so that if they do uh, get involved with, with something that really uh, uh, was, was rules-breaking, that they should also uh, have to suffer uh, monetarily for that because just about all of these uh, major athletic programs, they are involved with uh, federal money at, at one stage or another because uh, there's taxpayer money used uh, to finance those stadiums. There's also contributions uh, to the schools under uh, tax-deductible contributions, 501c, uh, not-for-profits, all different things. And this is, it, it's, everything seems to be about money as far as making things right at this stage of the game. And I, and I think that uh, that's also going to have to become a concern. Because another thing, too, is that the way that you fenders, that sends a message to other people who might think about offending that maybe it wouldn't be such a good idea and that maybe it might be better to stay on the straight and narrow and uh, realize that uh, we may not win as many games as we would like, but we don't have to be worried about somebody coming back to us and taking some of those victories away from us and taking trophies away from us and taking our names off of trophies and, and other things that would be really, really painful down the road. All right, John, a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, and if they wish to get a paperback copy of uh, the grand old man, Amos Alonzo Stagg, they can contact me personally at Greenberg John. that's one word, G-R-E-E-N-B-U-R-G, John, at yahoo.com. All right, great. Thanks, John. Thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was sports writer and historian John Greenberg. For more information about John, visit us at writerstalk.org. Now here's Mary Catherine Ramsey performing her original work, Emily Dickinson, Alone in Her Room. Emily Dickinson, Alone in Her Room. Emily Dickinson, hidden in her room, wearing all white, refusing guests, avoiding household chores because her sister Vinnie would do all the work in support of the great art that was being created and then tucked away in a drawer. It's all true. It's as real as me sitting here in my broken desk chair because somebody got very, very angry when the SpongeBob game froze up and refused to play, and that anger had to go somewhere. To Emily Dickinson, I will say, don't pretend to be real because it can't be real. A room, a life so close, so dedicated to you. And to Edna Pontillier, I will say, choose your children or choose death. Girl, please. I leave my children. I leave them at school. I leave them with babysitters. I leave them with their dad. But their voices echo in my ears. God is in the silence, I tell them, but they don't want God. They want me to listen, to watch. A room of my own? Sweetheart, I own the whole damn house. But the house gets crowded with vacuum cleaners. Four. Okay, five. Target had one on sale this morning, and it picks up pet hair in a snap. And in that snap, it will be as if I have no pets at all. 
and when I have no pets, I will be a writer in my office slash guest room slash playroom slash storage area just as soon as I mop the floor. Because somebody pooped, and I don't want to name names, but it could have been any one of them. I was a freshman in college. I will have a baby, I told myself, and I will put her in a backpack, and we will cross Europe together. But she is too big for that backpack now. We never made it to Europe. Her feeding schedule, napping schedule, school schedule, mom I need money for the field trip schedule interfered. And nobody told me they multiply like vacuum cleaners, and now there are two. And two puppies, because we don't share. But we don't like puppies, because they are not toys. She growled at me. She growled at you, because you are mean, and you touch and grab and pet and hold. And sometimes a puppy just wants to be left alone to its thoughts. And maybe its thoughts are not about you. I thought children would be cool, have wild yet manageable hair, stomp their tiny bare feet on the concrete as dreadlocked drummers played in a pedestrian ball in a town where we don't even live. But they don't like barefoot. They don't like drums. They don't like dance that doesn't involve three pairs of shoes, two changes of costume, a special bun pulled tightly tight by their mom who doesn't do hair, and lipstick and eyeshadow and all the other kids have cell phones, mom. 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 I will line up my vacuum cleaners one by one, straight line soldiers, and I will say to them, you have betrayed me. You said you would pick up marbles. You said you would save my back. You said no bags meant less mess, but that was a lie. You said you would be the kind of guy that my girls would marry someday. Or maybe you didn't say that. I just thought it. You said you would be the kind of guy who did dishes, and you do, but only if I say thank you. Thank you, dish man. You are the dish hero, dish man. I will be pilot from Song of Solomon, and I will cook the perfect egg and chew things and make rot gut and sell it to the blacks in town because I own this house and you have your last in it. I will close the door to my office slash guest room slash playroom slash storage area, and I will write. And I will ask that you not poke your little nose under the door whispering, Mama, are you done working now? Mama, are you in there? Mama, please come out and make cake with me. I will be Emily Dickinson, and I will say, Vinny, I am writing my letter to the world. Vinny, please, quiet the dogs. I am awakening my muses. Vinny, I dwell in possibilities, not dirt. Vinny, I am a loaded gun, and loaded guns do not wash dishes. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was OSU English graduate student Mary Catherine Ramsey with Emily Dickinson alone in her room. Next, we are joined by author R. Rizzler with Tarzan's Day Off. This is R. Rizzler reading the essay, Part One of Tarzan's Day Off. Last March, I did something monumental. I left my house for an entire day. And okay, so maybe that doesn't seem like such a watershed event, but then again, I'm the kind of person who, aside from occasionally finding myself semi-conscious at Lowe's, really just leaves the house to buy groceries and do laundry. And basically, I live next door to a grocery store and across the street from a laundromat. So it's not like I have to go that far. It's not like it's that much of a safari either. One time, I was going to the store and it started to rain, so I had to run. That's about as exciting as it's ever gotten. I sometimes try to imagine what it would be like if I had a stalker. That person would die of boredom, I have no doubt, and the only way I'd even find out about it is if the pizza delivery guy showed up at my door one day and said, here's your pizza, and there's some dead guy lying out on your curb. 
It would be like an opening scene from Law and Order, and in the end I'd probably get arrested for depraved indifference to a maniac. And even if my stalker didn't die of chronic ennui waiting for me to do something stalker-worthy, I'd probably just find a post-it note stuck on my door one day that said, I can't take it anymore. I quit. Anyway, last March, I decided to take a day off from my regularly scheduled, rather sedate life and go to Toledo, Ohio, not Spain. I only took off one day, and besides, if I ever went to Spain, I'd call my stalker first just to let him know that there was hope for me yet. I went there for a guitar festival and to see Jennifer Batten play because I'm definitely a fan of hers. But in the course of my journey, I discovered something. After a certain age, being a fan of anyone or anything is more difficult than you'd think because at a certain point, you just have to start making it up as you go along. But that, as it turns out, isn't such a bad thing for someone like me. Now, plenty of grown-ups like plenty of things, but being a liker is different than being a fan. The word fan, after all, is really just a shortened form of fanatic. And I don't know too many grown-ups who like to describe themselves as fanatics. I mean, there's just a certain point at which it begins to take on a negative spin that can get you into a whole lot of trouble with a whole lot of government agencies. Besides, adults are supposed to be level-headed and rational. And if there are two things you don't usually see in a fanatic, it's an even temper and common sense. Children are, of course, the best fans on Earth because children are inherently fanatical about everything. I mean, you can put kids down on a grassy patch and they'll start running around in circles screaming about how great grass is. And when you take them off the grass, they let out these blood-curdling screams like you're just killing them, until, of course, you put them down on the pavement, at which point they become fanatical about that. Children have a ton of energy and really, really short attention spans, so they're just tailor-made to be fans. All you have to do is point them in the right direction. But imagine if adults had that kind of energy and distractibility. Imagine having the cubicle next to that guy. He'd spend all day running around in a circle in there screaming, I love this office! I love this office! Imagine being in a staff meeting where someone spends the whole time jumping up and down, yelling, I love this project! I love this project! But Jeffrey, we're going to be done with it next week. No, but why? Why can't we keep doing it? I'm doing it. I'm doing it more and you can't stop me. But Jeffrey, the client, I hate the client! He's wrecking everything! And then the wailing and the sobbing and the pleading would start. Eventually, he'd end up rolling around on the floor screaming while everyone else just tried to ignore him. He does this every time we have a meeting. Don't pay any attention to him. He has to learn that he can't always get his way. Well, yeah, but isn't he our manager? Of course, as children turn into teenagers, things do start to change. Teenagers roll around on the floor less, or at least for different reasons. And being a fan starts to take on another dimension. Teenagers won't be fans of just anything like children will be, and even when they are fans of somebody, they often won't admit it because other teenagers might not think it's cool. But that only lasts so long. At some point, teenage fans discover that they are not alone, and then all that repressed fanaticism boils over. There's mass screaming and crying and swooning and fainting, and if they're Justin Bieber fans, there are also usually a few death threats involved. One of the strangest incarnations of teenage fanaticism, though, has to be the throwing of underwear at a performer during a concert. I think that happened to Elvis a lot, and as far as the Beatles went, it was like an undergarment bomb exploded every time they went on stage. A friend of mine told me that, just recently, someone threw a bra at Joan Jett during a concert. So, you know, it happens. But you have to admit, the whole practice is a little strange. If fans were throwing money, or even coupons, that would be one thing. But it's underwear for What are you supposed to do with an entire stage covered with that? Just think of the safety issues. 
but it's also strangely and thankfully a practice largely confined to teenage girls. I mean, can you see some guy lobbing a jockstrap at Steven Tyler or Eric Clapton? Do you suppose John Lennon ever worried about getting beaned with a pair of boxer shorts? I don't think even female performers have to worry about that kind of thing, because from what I've seen, guys just aren't that willing to part with their underwear. They'll yell and scream and carry on, but they're not giving up their drawers. And luckily, it's a totally age-related thing, too. After all, the bigger and more sensible you get, the bigger and more sensible your underwear gets. And at a certain point, you're not just throwing your panties on stage, you're tossing a big old pair of grandma pants up there. And not only is there something that just seems offensive about that, there actually is something offensive about that. Imagine being a musician trying to play a song and having a pair of underwear the size of a bedsheet come flying at you. It wouldn't just be bothersome, it would be traumatic. I keep having this nightmare, doctor, and all I see are these huge underpants with big teeth and claws coming at me. It would be a miracle if that performer was ever even able to get on a stage again. As fans get a little bit older, though, they eventually just start taking over the look of whomever they happen to be into. When I was in college in the 80s, you had three choices, British punk, new wave, or preppy. I bounced between new wave and preppy because with new wave you got shoulder pads, and with preppy you got Weegins. It was very practical. I personally didn't have enough safety pins to pull off punk, and wearing a mohawk involved putting too much gunk in my hair. Besides, I was from the suburbs. We didn't really know what punk even was, but we were pretty sure that it was scary and kind of bad. Of course, there were always a couple of Madonnas around then, too. And that was cool unless some Pat Benatars showed up, in which case there was likely to be a fight. My personal favorites were the people who were into Grace Jones. They were all men, of course, but at least they could work the look. After a certain point, though, the real world starts to set in, and that kind of fandom gets impractical. After all, you can't really show up for your job at the bank dressed in a Lady Gaga meat dress, and not too many people want stock advice from someone doing a gangster rap look. I mean, when you get to the point where you have to dig your daytimer out of the crotch of your pants hanging somewhere down around your knees, you know it's time to trade in your bling for a Blackberry. Past a certain age in life, you just have to accept the fact that dressing like a pimp is only appropriate if you actually are a pimp. But that's when being a fan starts to get hard because you have no plan to follow. Sure, there might be mass hysteria, but you're too tired to participate in it for more than 10 minutes. Besides, you might pull a muscle. And you're no longer willing to risk getting your spleen bruised by standing directly in front of a giant stage speaker because while the physical pain would suck, the medical bills would kill you. And if you start screaming and yelling and carrying on like you did when you were a teenager, people will look at you funny. And then they'll call the cops on you. And while I'm sure that being a 40-year-old woman dressed up as, say, Hannah Montana isn't actually illegal in most states, I don't know too many people who want to have their sorry ass dragged into a police station for question-overing it. So the challenge of being a middle-aged fan is figuring out how to express your fanaticism without incurring a hospital bill or triggering a police investigation. Then again, while it can be fraught with danger, the absolute lack of direction for fans over 40 is really a good thing for people like me because I'm really pretty terrible at being a fan. And I always have been. I wasn't the kind of little kid you could put down on the lawn and watch run around screaming about what a wonderful thing grass is. I was allergic to grass. If you put me down on a patch of it, the only thing you got to watch was me getting hives. And I wasn't the kind of teenage fan who ever even considered throwing a pair of underwear at a performer. I liked my underwear. I needed my underwear. And my mom would have killed me if she found out that I was just randomly throwing it at people because, hey, underwear is expensive and it's not like it grows on trees. 
Ultimately, I think that being a fan over 40 is kind of like the great equalizer. It's the point at which inherently terrible fans like me get to catch up. It's where just saying, I'm a fan, is enough to qualify you as a fan. The most you'll ever have to do after that is enter your credit card numbers into the Ticketmaster website, and there's certainly no reason for you to dress up or scream and carry on just to do that. But beyond that even, being a Jennifer Batten fan over 40 is kind of like sweet revenge for all incompetent fans everywhere. Batten is basically an electric guitar virtuoso who does a multimedia show, and the whole point of going to see her is that you show up, sit down, and shut up. You're supposed to watch and listen. If you got up and started jigging around and screaming and flinging undergarments hither and yon, about half the audience would probably call the police. Well, Jennifer Batten would probably stop and call the police on you herself. If nothing else, you'd almost certainly get some of the most memorable stink-eye looks in music history. It's the kind of situation where a calm fan is a good fan, and given that I am often positively inert, my prowess at being a fan is very nearly the stuff of legends. So last March, I went to Toledo. I saw an amazing musician play an incredible show, but even more than that, I was actually a fan. And it was wonderful, because what I discovered is that it's virtually impossible to fail at being a fan when you're over 40. No one expects anything from you. You just have to utter the magic phrase, I'm a fan, and you are one. Technically, you don't even have to show up for anything. So if you do, you're like a super fan. And as far as I'm concerned, that's like heaven on earth. After all, when you're someone like me, it really is the best of all possible worlds. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to our guests, John Greenberg, Mary Catherine Ramsey, and R. Rissler. Join us next time as we talk to authors from the Columbus Creative Cooperative. Until then, this is Brendan Telerik. Keep writing. Keep writing.